When I was 18 years old, I was driving around in my parents' Toyota Avalon. I was tripping on mushrooms. I had separated cocaine to sell. I was smoking a blunt. I had uh, open containers of alcohol. I had marijuana separated. I had a digital scale. Hey, I'm sorry to interrupt. Matt LeBlanc here. You are listening to David Gitterman, my class clown rival from second grade, talk about a time when a necessary delusion blew up in his face. Here's David. Listen to this. I got stuck on my dead-end street in the snow. I was two houses down from my home, okay? The car stuck. I take all that illegal stuff I just stated because it's my parents' car, correct? I put it into my puffy jacket because I don't want it in the car. Now, instead of like a normal human being walking to your house, knocking on the door, Dad, help me push the car. It's stuck, right? I call because you want to talk about inflated ego, okay? I call the non-emergency police line because it's two in the morning and they're out checking ticketed cars yeah hi this is dave gitterman just a tax-paying citizen uh i'm out here you know i know there's officers out checking cars i was just wondering if uh you could send one over give me a push they show up seven eight cop cars deep and did i go to the house and empty my coat before they came absolutely not and so i'll never forget i'm tripping on mushrooms i'm 18 this is like the day after my 18th birthday i am officially an adult Dave Gitterman, hands up. And that's what led to my charge. That was a huge delusion of mine. And that proved it with that phone call. In case you didn't get that, he called the cops on himself. Your necessary delusion. Your necessary delusion. Why do you keep lying to yourself? Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and the chick and the duck have all grown up, and I've heard every single one of them, so don't be a douche. I'm sorry to be hostile. Anyway, this is Your Necessary Delusion, Episode 2, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. And if we're talking to you, then please subscribe to the podcast. Write us a review anywhere that you're listening, specifically Apple iTunes would be great. And if you haven't listened to episode one, go now. I mean, you don't need to listen to it, but it's kind of the origin story. It's the birthplace of my necessary delusion, which was to be the funniest guy in my second grade class. Not true. No. David Gitterman is funnier than me. To this day, my friends are like, you have to... Go just try open mic. Just try open mic. This is pretty much everything he can remember from second grade. I remember the snow was taller than me. I remember stay away from yellow snow. And I remember crapping my pants in karate class when I kicked too high. He really he said, you really got to hi-ya! And I, I too much hi And those white karate pants just weren't white anymore. That was a really embarrassing moment for me. Aside from being the funniest kid in class, David was also the smallest. He looked like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Big blonde hair, sharp, snarky smile. Calvin and Hobbes also happened to be our favorite comic. Damn it. Another point for Gitterman. My mom, her ideal look was Surfer Joe. As soon as that white hair came out, she would blow dry it. She would part it down the middle for me. She would buy little surfer shirts. Gitterman was a cute kid. But when he got older, he didn't want to be cute anymore. And what you just heard in the cold open was kind of the climax of Gitterman's necessary delusion. His arrest. See, Gitterman had a fantasy that was driving him, too. That fantasy? To be a gangster. The only thing I wanted to be was a gangster. I honestly believed 
I was like a little John Gotti. From Calvin and Hobbes to John Gotti, from Walter White to Heisenberg. How does a fantasy like this start? Where does it come from? Gitterman remembers the first time he had the idea in second grade. I could tell you the exact moment. It actually started. Do you remember the twins? Two twins in our class, a boy and a girl. We'll call them Keith and Louise. I got into an incident with them. I was messing around on the playground. I was messing around with an ink pen or something, and it broke on the sweater. Apparently, this is an heirloom sweater that he could not buy or replicate. They don't make this anywhere. This was a handmade sweater from his great-great-grandma passed down. Many, I don't know what the, was the big deal, but they made a huge deal about it. Keith's sweater got stained with ink. The twins were pissed. And as Gitterman tells the story, I actually vaguely remember this happening. Keith was a shy kid, he didn't talk a lot, and his twin sister Louise did. But when Gitterman spilled the ink, both of the twins freaked out. That's where my memory ends. But here's Gitterman. I had to do suspended lunches for, I got in big trouble. Then one day I was walking home, because I walk home every day, it's, it's at least a half mile. And uh, I noticed the station wagon going super slow, creeping, and I'm tripping out. I'm a small kid by myself. And sure enough, her mom's talking her up. Both twins jump out of the station wagon and jumped me, man. They literally attacked me outside of school. They stalked me, followed me, and attacked me. <laughs> this seems crazy to me. Shy Keith and his sister beating up Gitterman under the orders of their mother? I never would have imagined. But who am I to argue with Gitterman's delusions? That's where I started wanting to be a thug and like someone who even with a small stature would be intimidating because they go, oh, don't fuck with Gitterman. Like he's bad news. I remember that was the first time I wanted to be bad. I love that he remembered this story. These necessary delusions don't come out of nowhere. The fantasy always has an inciting incident. But we were still young. It would be years until Gitterman started putting his fantasy into action. Something that struck me from talking to Gitterman was how much he loves his family. How connected he still feels to them. Oh man, I have the best family on the planet that loves me to this day. I got a call from my dad. He's probably got something for me at the house. He wants me to go pick up dinner, you know. My mom's making sure I took my vitamins and I'm on my probiotic regiment. My sisters have beautiful children that I was there for their birth and have watched them grow. So there's a part of me that even though I'm not a parent, there's a part of me that, that has felt that joy of seeing kids born, watching their development, being a part of their growth. Am I the only one that loves to hear people tell stories about their parents? Gitterman's dad was a character. I don't think Dave meant it this way, but I feel like this story is full of a lot of foreshadowing. My dad was a hustler. I mean, the funny thing about my dad was he is so funny and lovable for the family. But if you are not inside that family unit, He's cutthroat. He will take everything you've got if you let him, just so his family's got what they need and they're safe. And he's hilarious. Literally, he's George from Seinfeld. I remember I said, Dad, I'm getting low on cash. Like, can I come steal some like uh, toiletries from your crib? Because sometimes I rob their crib. And uh, he handed me an entire bag of like hotel shit that lasted me like a month. He's like, here's here, man. Here's like 30 shampoos and conditioners and lotions, whatever you need. My dad was a hustler. I remember he gave me 10 bucks to go to the high school football game. I snuck under the fence and uh, I came home and I'm like, dad, here's 10 bucks back, man. I went under the fence. Like, good job, son. Nailed it. I'm like, all right. I thought I was poor. I had the free lunch card. My dad had, I was like, I thought we were poor. We were working from check to check. I had a job when I was 12 at Giovanni's Meat and Deli. He was paying me $4 an hour cash to sticker cans, and uh, I would give all that money to my dad. Apparently, they bought cows with it or something. And I later learned that a condo in Florida. And then he realized there are different levels of poor. 
thought we were poor, Dad. I'd have to have speeches to my friends before I bring them over. Like, I'm just letting you know, like, my dad is an asshole. You did not do anything wrong. That's why I'm telling you this now, because you haven't even done anything. And he will be an asshole. Like, and it's going to happen. Don't take it personally. He does it to everybody. It's cool. And then he'd come down in his tidy whities We call him the bear Jew. He thinks it's from Inglorious Bastards, but it's really because he looks like a bear. But he'd come down ripping me a new one. Dude. You, you giving him the good salami. Like, I, give him the freezer pops in the back freezer, not the good Briar's ice cream. Like, what are you doing? He had a spare freezer. The freezer pops are for guests. The Briar's ice cream is for the family. The freezer pops are for guests, the Briar's ice cream is for the family. It's like a lesson from The Godfather, except it was the suburbs in the mid-90s. You remember the 90s. I had the mushroom top, I listened to Ozzy Osbourne, I wore Lee Pipes and Peace Frog shirts. But the problem was my mom would come to my room, I'd be blasting my music, and she'd be like, ooh, is this Led Zeppelin? I'd be like, like, like what are you doing? And then I got my first Snoop Doggy Dog album. I played that in my room, and then she came in like, what the fuck? And I'm like, this is my music. That's what you're listening. That's my music. Okay, just leave. Gitterman credits Snoop Dogg as a contributor to his gangster delusion. I'll blame Snoop Doggy Dogg, actually. It's Snoop Dogg's fault. As a suburban white hip-hop lover myself, I will tell you the hours I have spent seriously rapping Jay-Z lyrics definitely has created something of a fantasy in me. The most obvious being that I know how to rap. I'll spare you. No, I won't. I can't help it. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Matt. LeBlanc. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I have never sold snowflakes by the OZ. O OG. OZ. I don't get the reference, but I have repeated that to myself a thousand times. The other thing that cemented my love of hip-hop that made it for life was, I think it was either the fifth grade or sixth grade dance, and I saw the black people grinding to the music, and I'm, I remember asking a teacher, I'm like, are they allowed to do that? And she said, Dave, they're just dancing. And I said, they're just, they're just dancing. Pumping the fuck out of that girl's ass right now. In case you didn't get that, he said he's humping the f out of that girl's ass right now. All right, as long as it's consensual. It looks great. Like that's that's it. And I remember right there is where I got my rhythm because I'm like, I'm gonna, I am gonna hump this butt so good. I could have been a backup dancer for J Lo. I do have rhythm, and I like to break that white stereotype as many times as I can. Delusion! As the years went on, Gitterman began to transition from class clown to tiny thug. He remembers the first time he got in trouble with the cops for breaking a window at the elementary school. Me and broke the windows out in the school, and I'll never forget. I thought I was such a little, because the cops came. They caught us and held us. And I was like, uh, I thought we were just playing catch with a rock. And they're like, all right, it's all good. In retrospect, they probably just didn't give either way. But like I was convinced, like I, I got them over on it, man. They were off the hook. But that was like my first big like dealing with the cops. That was another thing I like to think I was like, I'll talk to the cops. Like I just thought I was the smartest human being on the planet. Like, Gitterman and I went to school together from first grade to twelfth grade. We drifted apart early on, but from afar I watched him get progressively worse. I mean, at the time we thought it was cool, but he began to manifest his gangster fantasy all around him. My father had a choice. I'm either going to send my son to a prestigious private school or I'm going to send him to public school in the most prestigious Hebrew school known to man. And so that's what I went. And it was actually pretty shitty because they all called me public school there because I was the only kid that went to that Hebrew school that couldn't also go to a private school of an equal caliber. And so I was like public school. And that's another thing that really instilled this. You're, you're that guy that you're the black sheep. You're the guy that's going to bring the weed to the party because 
you're that guy. You're the public school. <laughs> I kind of got pushed into it. And I just accepted it in a way. In seventh grade, he had a bar mitzvah. Thank God for my father because he said, son, you have a choice. You can either have a party at a hotel with a DJ or we're going to take you to Israel and do it at the Wailing Wall. And I said, party with a DJ? And he said, you're an idiot. We're going to Israel. That wasn't even a real question, you moron. And uh, I did thank him later. We went to the Wailing Wall. I was bar mitzvahed at the oldest standing wall in the world. And uh, then my dad's like, you're bar mitzvahed. You know, we had an apartment in Jerusalem. He's like, go ahead, hit the streets. And mind you, there's like suicide bombings happening a mile from where we had an apartment. And me and my sister, I'm 13, she's 15. We walk in, we buy butterfly knives. And he goes, are you old enough? I'm like, bro, I just got bar mitzvah. And he's like, cool. I swear to God, I'm like, here you go. And I'm like, wow, is that a real thing? Like, can I go get beer too? I might be idealizing some of this, but walking through the streets of Jerusalem with his sister, listening to the sound of suicide bombs go off around them, stabbing at the air with butterfly knives and sipping on cans of beer. I imagine this kind of like the scene from Goodfellas when Henry gets pinched for the first time. Gitterman had popped his cherry. He was only 13, but he was doing whatever he wanted, just like a gangster. Stay tuned! In Act 2, Gitterman's rise to the top as a suburban gangster kingpin. And then, of course, the fall. Coming up next. Today's episode of Your Necessary Delusion is brought to you by MailWimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailWimp to force scrawny postal workers to carry bags that are too heavy for them door to door. MailWimp. Like regular mail, only wimpier. If you are a small business owner, podcaster, or maybe you just have such a big personality that it needs its own theme song, Your necessary delusion. hit up my guy Ryan Fine. That's F-I-N-E. Go to ryanfine.com, click on custom songs. All of the music that you hear on these episodes has been made by Ryan. The guy's a super talent. He is quite affordable, and he will take your rough ideas and transform them into actual music. RyanFine.com, click on custom songs. Gitterman and I went to a public high school on the east side of Cleveland. And even though we were in the suburbs, the school was a little scary in my opinion. Lots of drugs, lots of fights, security guards, and eventually metal detectors. I was essentially a theater nerd spending three periods a day in the choir room. I hated it. I wasn't invested in my schoolwork. I was biding my time, fantasizing about a life that was bigger and better. Gitterman, on the other hand, had a very different experience. My school career should be a freaking movie. The first year was insane. There was a fight every other day. You could show up whenever you wanted to. Tenth grade is when I really, the delusion of a gangster, I was like, I'm going for this. Do you remember me in high school? I was such a little piece of Because at this point, I had adults listening to me. I was selling things to the security guards. They let a 23-year-old gorgeous black girl be a high school security guard. I would text her. She would come to my class. I'm like, Dave Gitterman's needs at the security office. And uh, they'd be like, ooh. I'd be like, no, okay. And I'd go hook up with her in the room closet and then take her car to McDonald's or something. I can actually confirm this. The security guard was super hot. I remember hearing the rumor that she was with Gitterman. And honestly, I didn't believe it. It was inconceivable. Until one day I turned the corner into the back parking lot and I saw them walking together. They were all over each other. Gitterman with his fitted baseball cap turned backwards like Fred Durst, his whole ass hanging out the back of his jeans. Remember, this was the late 90s. He couldn't have weighed more than 115 pounds. And the security guard was a goddess. 
In a crappy navy blue uniform, she was gorgeous and she towered over him. Gitterman's hand tickled her waist. She leaned down, giggling, and kissed him on his neck. Two decades later, this memory stays emblazoned vividly in my mind. My jaw must have been touching pavement because I didn't just do a double take. It took me several days to fully digest this image. I recounted this sighting to many people. Little did I know, while I was rehearsing to be Teen Angel in our production of Grease, Gitterman was building an empire. In high school, I, w I was so bad. I would just put on a tie and a clipboard, and we would back our cars up to wealthy neighborhoods with open garages and steal golf clubs. And God forbid, because this is broad daylight, that someone would walk out and see me grabbing some golf clubs. I'd just take the clipboard. I'd go, Mr. Lewinsky, and I would say an address two houses down. I'd be like, we're here from the country club. You have your golf clubs. And he'd be like, Lewinsky, what address? No, 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 I'm so-and-so from here. And I'd be like, sir, I just about stole your golf clubs. Can you believe? I mean, I would shake their hands. They'd be like, maybe I'll have you clean them. You want to come back next week? I'd be like, sure. Unbelievable. The shit you can get away with with a straight face. Lots of kids steal stuff, but Gitterman was bold. He had charisma. He also had a giant ego and was living in a fantasy. I would come up with these schemes. Like, the kids would try and shoplift, and they would put clothes on under their shirts. I'm like, dude, you're an idiot. Let me show you the Gitterman genius. And it was so smart. We would go in there. I would stack. This is when they would put the units, like PlayStations weren't empty boxes. When you saw a pyramid of PlayStations, they were actually the game consoles in that box. And I would go grab a brand new PlayStation. I would take that whole stack of jeans. I would take that whole stack of T-shirts, all these, as much as I could carry, like five grand worth of shit. And I would just walk in circles. And I'd go, Ma, Ma, like, where you at? Buy me this shit. And I had my phone, and he, I'd have a guy circling in the back. They, a lot of times they know what you're doing. They'd have people waiting at the exits, but they can't get every exit covered instantly. And he'd go, exit B, now. And I'd dip out, alarm would go off. I'd jump in the car. We already switched the plates. And keep in mind, we did this so much. I would train kids to do this. I was training crews of kids to do this. I, I made 20 grand in two weeks. He was making money, and for everything he stole, he sold. We had a deal called 222. Two hoodies, two t-shirts, two jeans, 200. And we were selling it out the back of Skippy's truck at the Welsh parking lot. Gitterman, Prince of Thieves. Apparently, he had a scam for everything. I called it the lawnmower shoe skit. You get your dirtiest shoes that you cut grass in, and you go to Kohl's where they just let you pick the shoes. You know what I mean? You don't get anyone, and you just switch them and put the brand new shoes on, put the lawnmower shoes, and it got so bad when you would go to Kohl's to do it and you would see a pair you want, you'd open it, and it's already lawnmower shoes. We single-handedly, like, replaced their whole stock of shoes with lawnmower shoes. Delusion! Could this be true? They replaced all the shoes? Or is this Gitterman's delusions playing tricks on him? Hard to say. He was telling the truth about that security guard. God, that was so crazy. I wish you could have seen who I'm talking about. Gitterman was a ringleader. People were drawn to him. Also, neither one of us are in any way condoning theft here. We're not trying to give anyone any ideas. And if you are getting ideas, check yourself. This show is about celebrating vulnerability, but it's promoting mindfulness. Be thoughtful about your delusions. Gain some self-control. Keep away from acting out on the negative ones. Like, you're a mom, but you're also a thief. No. I have such a pet peeve about people acting like they have nothing to lose when they do. Don't steal shoes from Kohl's. Ugh. Where were we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Gitterman was going to tell us about the drugs. We had so many drugs, it came to the point. I don't know if you know a girl named I knew the girl he's talking about. And just like Gitterman told me, she had a crush on all the gangsters. And for as bad as they were, her mom seemed to offer them a kind of safe house. 
with benefits. So her mom would let us party there to the point where she tried to adopt us all. And she would take us on $1,000 shopping sprees and got us all brand new cell phones in her name. So the stories about this girl's mom were urban myth. I actually always thought they were an exaggeration, but now I believe. Because all these years later, Gitterman's story is incredibly consistent with every rumor I ever heard. Anyway, the point is she got them cell phones and Gitterman used it to sell drugs. They printed business cards with the phone number on them, and they would post up outside all the different high schools in the area. We'd wait for a bell to ring. Everyone would walk out and be like, if you need drugs, call this number. And like that cell phone would never stop ringing. That was when they first came out with two flip phones. The flip phones were just invented. I had both of them. My dad got me the black one. That was my family and friends. And then I had her get me the gray one, and that was our phone. And it just never, and we were nuts, man. We sold crack to the security guards and cocaine to them. We used to sell that shit all over in school. I was dating a girl that was a veterinarian. She used to get me liquid special ketamine, and then we would in turn bake it and make the powder form and sell that. I sold a lot of acid. Crack and cocaine and ketamine, acid. God, there were a lot of drugs in high school. I didn't do any of them. Not my thing. My thing was apparently show choir. While Gitterman was moving snowflakes by the OZ, nailed it. I was spending my weekends singing old show tunes at community centers in tuxedo pants and a sequined vest. So you tell me what was worse. I was promoting clubs when I was 16 years old. The owners knew I wasn't 21, but they gave me 21 bracelets because I would pack their clubs with 18-year-olds. That's why I had this ego because I was like, adults were reaffirming this you're the man you're the g we need Gitterman. like he's the plug you can't say he wasn't ambitious between selling the drugs and the golf clubs and the stuff they stole from the department stores they were bringing in some serious cash so like wise guys at the holidays they celebrated every new year's we would rent the embassy suites downtown cleveland we would rent the hunt club below it for 25 grand and they would give us a floor of hotel rooms for free because we rented the club and then we would staff it Wait, 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 wait. 25 grand? Se wait, seriously? They were 16. I had a job at a deli in high school. Ugh. He was hiring staff? How did he know how to do that? I had always heard about these New Year's parties, but not my scene. I wasn't invited. I was busy anyway. Delusion! Gitterman was supporting his necessary delusion with action and consistency. He was manifesting his dream in the real world. His career as a criminal was thriving, but his career in high school had started to get in the way. The school thought so, too. They came to me. I'll never forget. It was the craziest thing in my life. They're like, you're one of the top 23 people most likely not to graduate high school. You know, like, thanks for the vote of confidence. The school had a whole population of kids that were in danger of not graduating. And as a student there myself, I'll say they were also disrupting the potential for learning. Not Gitterman necessarily, but kids were bullying the teachers, they had clearly corrupted the security team, and a trend had started of setting the bathroom on fire on the second floor. It happened like three times in a month. Something had to change. They basically backroom dealed me. They're like, you're the only one in this school that has proficiency scores to do what we need. We're trying to get a grant for next year. We want to expand. You're going to be our poster boy. And I was. I was in the paper. They're like, look at Dave Gitterman. He was so effed up, but now he's a 4.0 honor roll student. They paid for me to go to community college, and I'm the only kid that walked out of there with a high school diploma. I'm an honor roll student. I graduated my junior year. They're paying for me to go to college. It was insane. The school bought the tiny church on the edge of the property and turned it into alternative school, a last-ditch part-time effort to get all the bad kids to graduate. Gitterman's good proficiency test scores had apparently been instrumental in helping launch the program. 
It worked out well for him. Alternative school was all computers. They only had to be there three hours a day. And from what I can remember hearing, they got to go on a lot of field trips. We took a whole field trip, the whole class, and a bus to Squires Castle. 25 students lit into the woods, got high. All of us. We get back on the bus. She's like, well, we basically know all of you are stoned, but we can't suspend the entire school. So how we're going to handle this is you guys can't do this anymore. And that was it. Like, I was like, okay. It was so dumb. They'd be like, okay, there was a fight. The police are on the way. If you've got pot or anything, now's the time to hide it. They'll be here in 15 minutes. I would be washing my hands one day. I'd get a paper towel. A sack of weed would come out in my hand. I'd be like, oh, Merry Christmas. It was nuts, man. Good times, though. It reminds me of Goodfellas when they all go to prison just to get away from their wives and they spend all day making dinner. It seemed like everything was working out. He got a high school diploma in half the time, and he still had the rest of the day to run his scams. But little did he know, reality was about to catch up. There was a girl in the neighborhood. Gitterman had carpooled with her to Hebrew school. One day, he and a friend decided to break into the girl's house on a whim. And I remember I didn't want to rob her house because I needed shit or anything. I remember I wanted to rob her because I knew where they kept a spare key. They signed out of school and drove to her house in the middle of the day. Gitterman found the key in its spot. Being the amateur burglars, we forget gloves. So we take plastic bags, grocery bags, and take them around our hands, okay? So we get in this bitch. They couldn't find much. A container of change. They were getting pissed. We don't want any of the electronics. We just want cash. You know what I mean? We're upset that this is all we're going to get. So we're in here for fucking hours looking for shit. It should have been easy enough to just leave. But before they could, the front door opened. And what do you know, but my friend Skippy decides to cut school with who other but to take her home and try and hook up with her. The girl that lived in the house. This house. So we are in this girl's house burglarizing her. When him and her walk in the fucking house. Skippy and the girl could tell that something was going on almost immediately. The tension was rising. We're hiding in this back room. We can hear them realize it's dawning on them. We didn't even think it through. There was no plan. Gitterman's partner jumped first. Boom, he went out the doggy door in the back of the house. I'm like, fuck, you ain't leaving me for this shit. I'm right out the back door with him. And we just take off sprint and we're like, fuck it. We get out. They went back to school, empty-handed. They actually went right back to class. It was late in the afternoon. We left so much evidence. I still had the marks from the doggy doors on my pants from diving out the doggy door. I didn't even change my pants. The cops showed up almost immediately. And so, yeah, they came straight to school, like right after we got back, like straight there, like you idiots. I had gym that period on the first floor. I was in the weight room doing impressions of the cheerleaders from SNL and not working out. Two cop cars pulled in. We all went to the windows. The school was a giant old dark brick building with a gothic looking tower on top. The weight room faced the courtyard. I had a front row seat. The cops disappeared inside. It had just rained. The asphalt was wet. A couple minutes later, they came back with Gitterman and his partner in handcuffs. Gitterman got put in the back of the cruiser. Just like a mob movie, the whole story started to crumble. When I walked into that cop car, I looked back at the school. There wasn't a window that didn't have a face in it. Every window of the school filled with faces watching. Three floors on all three sides of the courtyard, looking down. And I remember, you would think most people would be like, oh my God, man, this is horrible. We were like soaking up the, the gangster of it. Like they must think we're the biggest fucking thugs on the planet. That's just how delusional it was. He was right about one thing. For better or worse, with the handcuffs and the cops and the audience and all the mystery surrounding him. From my perspective, at least, he looked like a gangster. 
Remember when Gitterman called the cops on himself when he got the car stuck in the snow? That happened later that year. He had charges against him, and just when it seemed like reality couldn't hit him any harder, it did. In high school, I, w I was so bad. My friends died, um, passed away in my home. I, I had uh, marijuana plants when that happened. There's a big deal. I went down a wrong path, very dark path, very quickly. There were too many needless deaths when we were in high school. Overdoses and accidents. Too many people that we knew, that we had grown up with, went too early. A lot of them had been Gitterman's close friends. I could literally sit here and do a whole another hour-long podcast on how many names I could list from kids that were my friends in high school that are now. I remember when I told my sisters I was going to get the names tattooed on me, and she's like, Dave, you don't have enough skin space. And she's right. If I would have started that that habit, I would have literally, I'd have an entire sleeve right now just of people that passed away in my life. It occurs to me as I listen back to Gitterman's story, his delusion wasn't to be a gangster. His delusion, like so many of us when we're young, was that he was invincible. Coming up in Act 3, Gitterman tells us about cleaning up his mess and the new delusions he's picked up along the way. Stay tuned. Today's episode of Your Necessary Delusion has been brought to you by Legal Broom. Legal Broom is a cheap plastic broom to symbolize sweeping away all of your legal problems. Legal Broom. It's not a real company. I only tell people to use it as an example for how absolutely horrible your ego can take you. In retrospect right now, the 36 of my senior now is very embarrassed about all this stuff. I look back at this stuff like really wishing I could press rewind. And I say quite frequently, Dave Gitterman as a youth needed to have his ass beat quite a bit more than he did because um, I, I really needed to be put in check back then. Unfortunately, I had to have life do it to me like in a much more dramatic way. At 18, when most kids are looking forward to begin their futures, Gitterman had to stay back and clean up the mess he'd made in his past, starting with the charges against him. Here he is talking about the time after he called the cops on himself with the car full of drugs. They're like, we want you to snitch on your friends, this, 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 this. I'm like, there's no way. They wanted me to tell on all my friends. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm looking at substantial years, so I'm like, I'm not, I can't do that. For almost a year, I did all sorts of illegal activity with that police department's knowledge for them in the pursuit of finding someone. And then I finally came to the point where they're getting too pissed. Like, Dave, you got to record something. You got to really give us some tangible evidence. So they strapped me up in a jean jacket that had a little camera in the button. And I'm just like, oh. Dude, I had got robbed a bunch of times in East Cleveland, going to the wrong neighborhoods, asking for shit. And I, I went back to those same neighborhoods. But all I did was buy like a eight ball of cocaine one time, which was way less than I had on myself when I was arrested. And I went back in his office and I looked at Lieutenant Face. I'm like, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do with that. Can I was like, I can't. There's no way. Yeah, I was like, you just have to do what you're going to do. And the other detectives were behind his ear like, are you kidding? He gave us nothing. Like, we got way more on him. This is ridiculous. What are you even considering? Ironically, the police lieutenant he was dealing with happened to be the cop that had given us anti-drug talks in elementary school. That man saved my effing life. I'd be in jail for probably 10 years right now if it wasn't for that man. He sat there for a minute just looking at me, and he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to go to Florida, and I want to change my life. He said, okay, Dave, go to Florida. He dropped a file this thick in the trash. He said, go to Florida. And get your life together. I feel like I should mention, I dissimplify this part of the story quite a bit. Gitterman was in and out of court cleaning up the mess he had made. He actually stepped up for the burglary charge so that his partner didn't have to take the heat. 
and my dad being so mad because I knew I was the motivator of this. And as a man, I was like, I can't let my friend who has such a bright future take the grunt of this. When I left and I went to Florida, I'm like, I can't make money like this. And at this point, I'm a felon. I'm just like, how can I make money that's not breaking the law? I thought I was untouchable. I was absolutely nuts up until I got to Florida. In Florida, he began working in restaurants as a waiter and then a chef. It was a good environment for him. Comedy came back into his life. As a waiter, he was at the tables, talking to people, making them laugh. He was doing the right thing for six years when his past came back to haunt him. You get a call, you have a felony warrant in Cleveland. So I'm like, holy shit. Like, and that was from when I was 18. Like, I don't, you don't expect that kind of stuff. At 28, I had to go back to Cleveland to take care of charges from when I was 18. And then I had to, to Cleveland County Jail for seven months until they, they let me out and then they wouldn't transfer probation. So they said, you do the crime in Cleveland, you do the time in Cleveland. I had to do three years on probation in Cleveland where they wouldn't let me get a license. I had to ride public transportation. And this is also the point in my life where my parents have learned what enabling is and they don't want to help me in any way, shape or form financially because that's enabling me, which is true. And it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my life because I had to rebuild my life Skippy put me on his couch, and that's what got me back on my feet. After Gitterman finished his probation, he returned to Florida, back to the restaurants. He's in his mid-30s now, covered in tattoos and a long beard. He's thoughtful about his actions, humbled by his past. He says he feels like he can finally start with a clean slate. I try and read. I try and elevate my thinking. I try and see every side of every situation, like no matter what. As you know, hard as it is, I've I've got a pretty large-sized ego. There's a part of me that thinks in my youth I was probably a full-blown sociopath. I like to tell people I'm a recovering sociopath. I'm a drug addict. I'm constantly trying to keep that in check. I, it's a problem you struggle with because it's not just an addiction to drugs. You, it's an addiction to women. It's an addiction to money. It's an addiction to parties. And like you just have an, that's my personality. I'm an addictive. I want my happiness instantly, like right now when I hit the switch. That's why right now I'm searching for a deeper, a, a long-lasting happiness that's not this artificial instantness that I've been getting most of my life. I don't even know anymore. I'm literally just trying to break it all down and build it back up. I'm actually, for the first time in my life, completely clean, no problems legally. I finally got to a point where I feel like I'm close to what a 36-year-old grown man should be at. And like, so it's finally nice to start thinking about things like, can I go into comedy? Because I've done so much damage and chaos. I've been cleaning it up for all these years. After high school, I moved to Philadelphia for college and started acting. Then New York City. I've been in Los Angeles for over 10 years now, working as a writer and producer in all facets of the entertainment industry. So many restaurants and kitchens that I've worked at in between. What strikes me most about Gitterman's story is how many similarities I find with him and my own. Two class clowns relying heavily on our ability to talk our way in and out of situations. My own path has been spotty and unconventional and made even harder by my own inflated ego and too many times that I acted as my own worst enemy. I find myself with so much empathy for a guy who let himself be guided by the wrong fantasy. I think everyone at some point, whether you think you need it or not, even if not with a therapist, with someone you love, dude, just talk it out, man. It is incredibly weightlifting to just get some of that. That's my biggest problem actually is my internal thinking and how much I torture myself for no reason. I torture myself and torture myself for things in the past that are so far gone. And I tell myself I don't deserve to be happy and things like that. And you have to get outside of your own brain sometimes and just be like, whoa. Did you catch his new necessary delusion at the end there? That he doesn't deserve to be happy.
because it is a very fine line between keeping a negative attitude and lying to yourself. We all use fantasies to drive us, and it can be an incredible superpower if we let it be. I hope that hearing this story has encouraged you to look at your own necessary delusions, because I am not telling you to stop lying to yourself. I'm just encouraging you to be thoughtful and to tell yourself the right story. Thank you for being here, Earth Monster. Do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. Write us a review wherever you're listening, specifically on Apple iTunes would be great. That's the Purple Podcast app. And if you really want to go out of your way, then recommend us to a friend. We're not telling these stories for no one, guys, and we've got a lot of good stuff coming. You're definitely not going to want to miss next week for a story that I'm calling Love Game. We never had a joint bank account or anything like that. But I figured out that the reason it was like that is because he ended up racking up like something like $70,000 in credit card debt that I was about to marry. If you have a necessary delusion of your own that you would like to share, get in touch with me on Instagram at yesmatthew or email me at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. I want to thank Ryan Fine for all of the music, ryanfine.com, click on custom songs, Christine Ramsey for our gorgeous thumbnail, Paola Monterde, the love of my life, for providing the recording space. Big thanks to my friend David Gitterman for answering my call after 25 years and agreeing to tell such a vulnerable, transparent, and inspiring story. Gitterman, I hope you will return with more Necessary Delusions in future episodes. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Thanks for being here. This sounds corny, but like I'm a Star Wars nerd and I believe that force is a form of karma and that you can read people's auras and vibes and like that can help you. Like when you get a gut feeling to me, that's like the force saying like you need to avoid that or do this. When I'm having thoughts about getting involved in comedy again, then my 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 class clown rival from second grade messages me like like that's a that's a God moment. to me. That's a higher power moment to me because like what are the chances? Ta-ta-delusion. <laughs>